John, we gather here today to mourn the loss of the 2022 Mets who are done. Yeah, we were both there for the end, and I would say it was stunning and it was abrupt. Yeah, we'll give our opinion on how it ends, what they should do in the future, and we'll be joined by Theo Epstein to talk all the new rules for 2023 on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, John, uh, I think we came here today thinking we'd be talking about the Mets one way or the other, and we're talking about them in the other way, which is they did not survive the first round after winning 101 games this season. I think a lot of this was about not beating out the Braves, right? The the previous weekend, they, they played seven games against the Braves from the end of August to the end of the season. They needed to win twice in those seven games. They only won once. It made them vulnerable to have to play the wild card. So as we sit here today, John, what do you think about the end game with the Mets? Yeah, I mean, 101 wins is a lot of wins, and that was kind of an abrupt ending. You know, I've been in clubhouses before that seemed devastated. Now, I know they get a cooling off period. We weren't in there for probably the first 15 minutes. They almost seemed resigned to it. To me, I think they knew what was ahead, and the situation that they were in with their starting pitchers seeming diminished generally. Bassett, great throughout the year, really not good in the last couple starts. Scherzer, fantastic throughout the year, not good the last couple starts. DeGrom, not perfect, got see performance, but, and also the Dodgers coming up, best team in baseball, followed by likely the Braves. It was going to be a gauntlet, and it's going to be very difficult the way they were playing. So, you know, it was a great regular season, but certainly ended very poorly. They needed to win one game in Atlanta. They had the pitching set up, just one game, and uh, they couldn't do it. Yeah, you know, John, it reminded me a little bit of a team we're both familiar with, which was Buck Walter's first playoff team, the 1995 Yankees, in that it was built around David Cohn and Jack McDowell. And McDowell got hurt and wasn't himself late in the year. And Cohn essentially, even if they had advanced, I think they knew he was pretty much shot. Remember, he ended up winning aneurysm the next year after throwing 147 pitches in game five. They just essentially ran out of starting pitching. And then their season ended uh, against Seattle. I guess we have to turn the page now. There's going to be a lot of big questions this offseason about the Mets. They have more big free agents than any team. Everyone should go get the New York Post today. John wrote a great column about uh, Jacob deGrom and how he would handle it in the future. Among the free agents, he feels like the most important because he's the most important to the fans, a homegrown guy. Why don't you say what you think the Mets should do with him? And if you want to go into some of the other free agents, go for it. Yeah, unlike with Judge, which I had told the Yankees they got to pay him whatever he wants. And I was told, of course, I will never have a job with the Yankees after telling them that. Uh, I think we need to set, they need to set a limit with DeGrom. I mean, he's obviously a fantastic talent, one of the greatest pitching talents ever. It's been a pleasure watching him perform on the mound. But realistically, I mean, I would weigh... 
the dependability versus the dollars, you know, I would look at it like, I mean, he's through 64 innings in the regular season this year and made over $30 million yet. And I understand he's going to get more on the open market. So he, he will opt out. Uh, he's got $30 million to go with the Mets. There is a team option also, so he'll wipe all that out and be out on the open market, and he will do much better. So he was correct saying that. And I, I do think the Mets should increase their offer, but in my mind, they need to have a limit here because we've now been through a couple of years with him. He missed 13 straight months, so half of each season was lost, even more than half of this season was lost, and realistically, we're talking about a 34-year-old at this point. I would offer a two-year deal for $70 million with big incentives. I polled agents who think he's going to do much better than that, and God bless him. If he does, I would say let him go, and we'll work with what what we have. Because I, I think dependability, and, and nothing against him, he's just injury prone at this point, at this stage in his career, 34 years old. To me, I would not go long for him, and I would not make him the highest paid player in baseball. Yeah, John, they, they, they have many. For a team that won 101 games, has an owner willing to spend, they feel to me like they have a lot of issues yes, going into yes. this offseason. And I think one of the issues we can't miss is the Atlanta Braves. The Braves, even in the last 48 hours, signed Spencer Strider long-term, right? They did it with Harris. They did it with Olsen. They did it with Riley. They've got Acuna and Albies. Like, we know what their core is moving forward, and it's a championship core. They won the championship last year. They've now won five straight NLEs. The Mets should not punt, obviously. They've got to keep going for it. But it feels like so much—my thought watching them is so much went right this year. Like, they signed four free agents and made a big trade for Bassett. They all worked. Yeah. Right? I got Even, Adovino, too. Yeah, Adovino I'd worked. Make it fine. Right? You know, their their players had good years. Nimmo stayed healthier than he's really ever stayed. McNeil won a batting title. Diaz yeah. had the best relief season in their history. I don't know that they could get so much right next year, plus they have these big four free agents. It's it's not yeah. an easy—I think they're very good, and they should go for it, but it's not an easy yeah. puzzle for them. Yeah, I would put the Braves aside. Just don't worry about them. You, you've got enough to worry. You've got enough on your own plate. They have all these free agents. I've got seven, I think, are key free agents, starting with DeGrom, who, as we said, will opt out. And then you have— Obviously, they signed these great free agents. Some of them are on two-year deals, so they'll have more questions the next year. Uh, This is a little bit of an older team. Uh, It's not the Cleveland Guardians, and that's why, again, I I don't want to harp on this. That's why I said they needed to go for it at the deadline and not be so timid and go get some players. And uh, like a lot of GMs, uh, Billy Epler and company, they didn't do it. And... uh, you know, they felt they were in good position at the time they were, and unfortunately they came up one game short in the regular season, one game short against the Padres. You know, obviously I think Steve Cohn is their top asset. He's willing to spend. He wants to win. He certainly has the money. Probably willing to take a loss if he has to. So, you know, I wouldn't be shy about spending generally, and I would certainly start by bringing back Nimmo if you can and Diaz. You know, there are some reservations about it going along with a reliever and giving big money to a reliever. It's been a lot very volatile historically. We saw Mariano Rivera. He's generally the exception, but I listed a number of them to a Mets executive yesterday, and he he still said, well, those are all Hall of Famers. I mean, Diaz, to me, was their MVP, so I don't see how you let him go. Nimmo has just improved markedly throughout his career. I mean... Gets on base, you know. He's become an excellent center fielder. So those are the two I'd start with to bring back. But 
you know, as you said, they went five for five. You're probably not going to go five for five again, but they need to be big in the free agent market out of necessity in this case because they're lo- they've got seven guys that I count, counting Lugo and Adovino as well as Bassett, Walker, Diaz, Nimmo, and DeGrom. That's, that's a lot of players. I tell you this all the time, John. Among the people who do what we do, I always think you have a feel for where the dollars are going better than most. And I want to I wanna put you on the spot a little bit because you – we, we, we always hear teams will do with what's within reason. Throw that out. It's not going to be reasonable. Some no. team, like what the Colorado Rockies paid Chris Bryant last year, nobody else was going to get close to that. It was so, therefore, it was reasonable for them, but not, not anybody else. I asked you yesterday, how much do you think Brandon Nimmo is going to get in this free agent market? And I think when you say this number out loud in front of a micro, in, into a microphone, most of the people listening to this podcast might blink a little. What do you think Brandon Nimmo is going to get? I mean, at this stage, you know, I think he's probably going to get seven for 150, maybe higher than that. Right. I mean, we saw what Ellsbury got. Obviously, that deal did not work. And that's you like know, a 10-year-old deal at this point, right? Somewhat similar type players. So, I mean, we could be talking about a $200 million play. Well, no one would have thought this going into the year, uh, that we could be talking about Close to 200 million, but I, I would say seven for 150 for him, and I would go with Diaz. To me, got to give him the record deal at this point, right? Chapman's got the record, right? So I, I would say she get 18 a year, so five for 90 for Diaz. Uh, and, and would I think you he comes about, back? I mean, Diaz Nimmo was wearing his uniform late. I don't know. Is, is that a sign that you know this is? He said he last, was taking pictures on the field with his family. On, well, was he taking pictures yeah. of his last moment as a Met on the field? I don't know. Would you do both of those deals? Like if you were like Steve Cohen well, has his asked, money, but. No, but uh, if yeah. Steve Cohn said, hey, you know what, should I we think, do this season? Would you go that high for Nimmo and that high for well, Diaz? I've already let DeGrom leave, so I, I would keep <laughs> the two younger, but I have money left over. It's not my money, once again, but I, I would keep those two guys, yes, Nimmo and Diaz. Yeah, and so that means letting Bassett go. And I again, I think we're looking at, as, as we kind of wrap up here, our opening segment is, think about it. They have Scherzer pitching a 39 next year. You don't know about that. We've never seen McGill and Peterson kind of get through full 162-game seasons. Walker's a free agent. Bassett's a free agent. DeGrom's a free agent. They probably will pick up the option on Carrasco, right, and bring him back. You're probably looking at getting a minimum two other starters, three other starters. That is not an easy thing, again, to go right, two for two, three for three in starting pitching. What do you yeah. think about that? Well, as you know, I would de-emphasize starting pitching and go to the bullpen. You know, to get a, a, even a number four starter costs, you know, what, $12 million a year or $15 million a year. And I guess we're bringing Carrasco back at $14 million as your number five starter, right? So, you know, to me, I would save the money there and keep it with your stars on your position, position player stars, spend it on the bullpen and not have that one-two combination that you had, obviously, with DeGrom leaving and go a different route. Well, the offseason came quicker for the Mets. We're going to have a real fascinating offseason to talk about them on the podcast. But next up on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman is Theo Epstein to talk about new rules and, and how he sees baseball as a general manager. Back on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, and we're so pleased that we'll be joined here by Theo Epstein. We were debating your current title. Let's do the former stuff, right? Uh, Three-time champion general manager, ended the hex in Boston, 86 years, ended the hex with the Cubs, 108 years. Uh, a consultant for on-field matters, and we're certainly going to get into on-field matters because uh, this will be the last postseason play with, quote-unquote, the old rules before we have some dramatic new rules. 
But I'm wondering, Theo, uh, to open this, if I could have you just put your, your, your former GM hat on. We just had four teams eliminated from the playoffs. I bet you three of them, all but Tampa, St. Louis, Toronto, and especially the Mets, probably had grand plans about how far they were going to go this offseason. I just wonder, as an executive, how do you balance the misery of uh, the immediacy of being eliminated and the thought of maybe overreacting? Hey, our plans were sh- were shattered, we're, we're short of this, and still trying to look at it from 20,000 feet as you get into an offseason and try to actually fix what's wrong with your club. Yeah, it's it's really hard. First of all, thanks thanks for having me on, guys. Good to be with you. Um, it, it's really hard to to balance you know the emotion of the of the postseason with sort of the the reality and the logic of of the regular season. And I think you start by taking a little break, right? Like yeah, and no no good decisions are made in the immediate aftermath of of uh, getting knocked out of the playoffs or probably winning the World Series, right? So it's just important no matter what happens to to take some time, process it, deal with the emotion, get it out of your system, and and then start a more more clinical assessment of what's gone on. But even so, it it can be it can be difficult because uh, even answering a question, like let's, let's say you know you win 100 plus games and you get knocked out in the first round, um, someone asks you a question: Was the season a success? Even that's a hard question to answer, right? You don't you don't want to say yes because the ultimate goal is to win the World Series, but then you're you're not doing the organization justice. So many things have to go right. So many people have to work incredibly hard. So many sacrifices have to be made in order to have an organization that can put forth a hundred win season, which which are pretty rare. Not this year, but but generally really rare. So it's just hard to reconcile, you know the the. The dichotomy of regular season success and postseason failure, even internally, let alone let alone externally, when it comes to making adjustments to try to win the World Series, I think you know you you have to start with the regular season. You can't win the World Series if you don't get there. But especially in this day and age, there are certain elements of a team that are crucial in the postseason. They don't guarantee success. Not having them doesn't guarantee that that you won't succeed in the postseason. But you have to make sure you have those ingredients. And if you don't have them, you know, that's what midseason acquisitions can can address as well. You know, there's this theory that the great starting pitching is really what uh, helps make a great postseason team. And, you know, I push back on that a lot because we saw the Braves with the best pitching in baseball for a decade win once. We saw the Phillies with the best rotation I've ever seen not win. They won when Cole Hamels was a starter. It was great, obviously, and I think Joe Blanton was either two or three at that point. What do you think the key is as you look at it now? You've taken a little bit of a step back, but you obviously were in it helping end three jinxes. What is the key to the postseason success as opposed to the regular season? I mean, I think we have to see how this format plays out. It's a little different. I think one thing that isn't an effective way to assess that is any type of anecdotal analysis. Like you just said, you know, pick this team here. Well, they had this, this other team didn't have that. That doesn't work. I think it, you know, it's important to sort of look, look at big samples, which, which is hard in postseason play because we're not dealing with a big enough sample, but you know, look, the typically in the postseason, you, you can, you can identify things that don't matter as much, right? Like your, your fourth and fifth starter, don't matter as much because the, the innings are going to be concentrated at the top of your rotation. The, 
you know, the sort of the end, the extreme depth of your bullpen doesn't matter as much. Your closer matters a lot more because you can be pitching more innings and a greater percentage of the innings. There's more off days in the postseason will be available more. You know, your ability to beat up bad pitching, that doesn't that doesn't matter quite as much. You're going to be facing really good pitching. And, you know, you could you could say and for a while there, contact hitting um, really mattered. Um, but then you can contrast you can contrast that with you know, the, how, how effective home run hitting is in the postseason. If you, I think it's like teams that at home or their opposition or the last couple of years are winning, you know, close to 90% of the postseason games or something. So, you know, I, I think, I think defense, um, if you look at big sample and then an even smaller sample, really important, you know, the, these games are close when, when the ball is put in play, it's, it's, it's really important to, to convert those balls into outs, but I think we'll have to see how the uh, the latest format bears out, and then you know get as big a sample as you can and and draw your conclusions. But I don't think there's any one formula. But certainly, it's, it's hard it's hard to win in the postseason if you don't hit home runs, if you don't have impact pitching that is gonna that you can then put in a position to pitch you know a, a great majority of your innings, and and I think uh, a, a tight defense as well. Theo, you mentioned the new playoff format a few times. That's this year. Next year, and you were very involved in this, uh, we're going to have some uh, seismic change to the game, some real impact with new rules. It will be too long to list it. Hopefully, we could get through all the major ones here. So just as a way to open, I wonder, which one do you think has the greatest impact and why? I think the pitch timer, ultimately, it's going to... I think have the greatest impact on the entertainment value of the game. And if you look at why, I think largely it's because it improves the game by giving fans more of what they like and less of what they don't like. And that's, that's a very effective way to address, you know, fan concerns. And when you, when you poll fans and, 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 and major league baseball has done a great job of that over the years through, you know, surveys and focus groups and uh, online data gathering fans tell you their favorite events in the game are triples, doubles, stolen bases, great defensive plays action. They want as much of it as they can get ball and play action and fans uh, least favorite events are anything having to do with, with dead time, you know, pitching changes, mound visits, things like that. And unfortunately, you know, the game has evolved um, over, over the last couple of decades to a point where those, those ball and play action events occur on average about once every four minutes, you know, so a, f- a fan has to sit there and, and wait four minutes just for sim- simply a ball and play, even a routine play, but to, to get an action event and and a big part of that is just how much uh, how much dead time there is between pitches and so the the pitch timer uh, while it may seem a foreign concept to most fans you know you always hear a lot and i used to say this too one of the things you love about baseball is there's, there's no clocks in the game that's what makes it unique um the pitch timer when we tested it this version of the time of the timer when we tested it in the minor leagues and talking about over 8,000 games, you know, the equivalent of three and a half major league seasons of, of, of testing. Once players adjust to it, it really does a good job of fading into the background and just creating this beautiful rhythm and pace to the game that's reminiscent of, of the way the game was played maybe 30, 40 years ago where pitchers get the ball, get their sign and fire, hitters stay in the box and are, and are ready to hit. And the result as fans is you don't notice the clock at all. All you notice is this great rhythm and, and more action and, and it creates a more, a more beautiful game. And as far as the, the play on the field, I think there's also, you know, the, the data shows that there's a chance for a real positive impact there as well. Pitchers working at that crisp 
pace so far, we've noticed they've tended to throw a few more strikes. That way, hitters in the box have tended to make a little bit more contact um, with the pitch timer, whether that's because they're locked in by not stepping out of the box or that hitters or pitchers can't throw quite as many max effort pitches because they don't have as much time to, to recover between at-bats. Defense, I think, will be a little bit crisper. You know, how many times have, have position players told you, I, I love playing behind a Mark Burley or someone, someone who works really quick because they can stay locked in as opposed to the, you know, the pitchers that are taking 30 seconds between pitches. So... You know, there's just a lot of encouraging signs. Yeah, I wanted to personally thank you for the pitch timer. I guess we call it a pitch timer, not a pitch clock. I just endured a four-hour, 20-minute uh, game that was, I think, nine runs were scored in the game, and it was, frankly, way too long, so I appreciate that. Um, the experimentation went really well in the minor leagues when it was 14 and 19. I know you dealt with the union and a few players who represented all the players, and they picked some very reasonable guys, Tyler Glass now and, and Whit Mer- Merrifield and some others. Uh, I'm wondering why you guys could do whatever you wanted. That was kind of the rule. You could have made it 14 and 19. Why did you exceed to 15 and 20 seconds instead of 14, 19? And what did you sense was the push? And the players didn't vote yes, even though they had reasonable representatives. They all voted against, even though their vote didn't really count in the end. Why do you think they voted against? And where did you sense the pushback came from? I mean, you you could do what you wanted to do, but you did make concessions. So talk about the concessions and where the pushback came from. I'll start with, with the headline, which is, One of the most important developments out of the the last CBA was the establishment of this joint competition committee uh, for the first time in baseball, mirroring what we've seen in other sports that have, I think, effectively, more effectively than baseball, made appropriate and timely rule changes to make sure that the product on the field is is the best it can possibly be, as entertaining as possible, giving fans more of what they want, less of what they don't want, put the players in the middle of the action, et cetera. And so that committee uh, was established in the CBA. And uh, as you mentioned, there are four player representatives. Um, There there are six owner representatives and there's an umpire umpire representative as well. And the whole point uh, was to be as collaborative as possible. And, you know, I think it's a recognition of the fact that um, to get rule changes right, uh, you should want and, and need the input of players on the field. They're the ones closest to the action. They're the ones most impacted by, by, by the rules of the game and any rule changes. The game uh, is about the players. Um, it's for the fans, but it's about the players. So, of course, yeah, you need player input um, in order to get the rule changes right. And despite the fact that players ultimately voted against the pitch timer, which I'll get to in a second, which I completely understand, there was significant collaboration uh, on the Joint Competition Committee. John Stanton, the owner of the Mariners, uh, chairs the committee. Um, the commissioner asked him to run it a collaborative way. He, he bent over backwards to do so. He was always available for the players. We had countless Zoom meetings and, and great discussions. And, and the bottom line is those discussions, the, the player feedback, and it wasn't just those four players, the player reps who went to all the players um, in, in the big leagues to get, to get their opinions. And then it came back to the committee. Um, the player input did um, improve the rule and, and did affect the rule. So, John, you made reference to granting the additional second. So we did that the minor league testing was 14 and 19. We went to 15 and 20. Also went from nine seconds for the batters to be attentive to eight seconds. 
there were, there were further changes as well. The disengagement limit with for on, on pitchers, which we can get into later if you want, that that was changed and now reset when a runner advances. We added an additional mound visit for the uh, for the ninth inning uh, to ensure that that was available in you know, close and late situations, a way to reset the clock. We made sure that umpires had special discretion uh, uh, to, to reset the timer when appropriate. So, you know, all those changes were a result of player feedback and were designed to make sure that in the big leagues with the third deck in, in games that matter a lot in late and close situations, the timer is not a major actor in the game. You don't want the timer to be a, a character. You want, you want the players to be, to be the protagonist. And, and so even though they didn't ultimately vote for the timer, they, they improved the rule. And I thought that was, that was a big victory. Now, why not vote for it? Well, I think a couple of reasons. One, sort of, and I think, the, you know, let me start by this. The players were hugely helpful and they want the best version of the game too. You know, they, they, they care about the game um, as much as anybody. They want to grow the game. They want the fans to be happy. So they, they, they were in this for the right reasons. I think they really do want changes that improve the game. But, you know, first of all, when you're, when you're a successful veteran big league player, by, by definition, you're, you're the best at the world un, under the current conditions, right? So any, any, you, you've made your living, you're helping your organization win by playing under the current rules. So any, any change to the, to the rules would, would be a bigger intrusion on a player and is more foreign to a player than it would be on me sitting in a boardroom. I don't have to go and play under a new set of conditions in order to, to, to make a living, in order to help my organization. Two is... I know we talk about the players like this, the players don't like that. Players aren't monolithic. It's, it's, a, it's a very diverse um, and, and large uh, body of players that make up the union. You have pitchers, you have position players, you have rookies, you have veterans, you have players who've experienced the timer in the minor leagues. You have those who've never seen a game with the timer and you know a whole different players with, who work fast, players who work slowly, players with intricate routines, players who don't have much of a routine. So, in the end, I think it was, it was always going to be hard to get any diverse body to a point where there's consensus on any one rule that has so many different variables in it. So again, I think it's understandable. I think there was tremendous cooperation and collaboration and, and the players really improved all these rules, even if they didn't ultimately vote for some of them. You know, Theo, I wonder if anything talks to whatever that term analytics means or modernity does more than the, sh- the, the growing shift over the years. You guys decided there were two potentials, right? Put the everyone's feet on the infield dirt or make sure there's two guys on both sides of the bag in the infield. You went for both. Why did you do that? And are you concerned at all about unintended consequences that if you open up right field again, you are going to get the kind of pull the ball, just go for Homer, the antithesis of what you've talked about in a lot of your answers, which is action, run, etc. The shift issue is is the one um, of all of all the rule changes where the data was the least clear and where there's, I think, the greatest risk of unintended consequences and where there's strong arguments on both sides. I think you mentioned the most compelling argument against change, which is that banning the shift does benefit a certain subsection of hitters. You know, mainly three true outcome type left-handed hitters who are pull heavy, who who don't align with with the broader goals of increasing the amount of balls in play and athleticism on the field. There's also counter arguments just based on precedent and, and competitive philosophy that teams should have the right to position fielders wherever they like. We certainly heard that from from GMs and managers. And then you mentioned another another reason, um, another strong argument, which is 
it's hard, it's really hard to foresee the downstream impacts um, of, of the shift rule. You know, the, the game on the field is, is a set of behaviors uh, based on incentives. When you, when you change the incentives, you change the behaviors, there are adjustments made back and forth. It's, it's hard to see exactly how this one will play out. And then last but not least, I think the other, the other argument is that, you know, the, the shift itself, while it does annoy a lot of people in the game, you know, um, a lot of fans, um, we can get into this, why, why, why they don't like it. It's not the root cause of, of the negative trends in the game, right? It's not, the shift isn't the reason by itself that the league is hitting 243. That has a lot more to do with, with pitcher dominance and, and the shift doesn't really do anything to to address that. So, so those are, I think, the arguments against doing something. But I, th- I think in the big picture, the arguments for some change and for legislating the shift are, are more compelling under, under the current circumstances. And we got into it a little bit, but, you know, look, fans, this is about the fans, right? Ultimately. And, and, and fans grew up knowing where the shortstop and the second baseman uh, would be in, intuitively when they watch a game, fans know what a hit should look like off the bat um, when they're, when they're watching the game. And, and, and we heard that from fans that they, when, when there's no shift out there, the game is more relatable. It restores this aesthetic that's, that's more traditional throughout the history of the game. So that, that's one strong argument is that obviously fans aren't monolithic either. There's opinions on both sides, but a lot of fans like the more traditional aesthetic. The second, and this is one that I hadn't thought about a lot until we tested the anti-shift legislation and saw it in action is that, Shift restric- restrictions really do bring back the premium on athleticism for defensive infielders. You know, when you're shifted, fielders tend to get bunched up on one side of the field. You can get away with less athletic players. We saw a lot of you know sort of slower moving, less athletic third baseman signed to play second base with the thought process that you just stick him in the shift and 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 they wouldn't get exposed. And uh, with the shift, infielders uh, with the shift restrictions, infielders have a lot of room to roam. Uh, they can make plays at the extremity of their range. We found that, you know, anecdotally, the amount of like diving plays where players leave their feet have to make that that play at the end of their range that goes up. And, and infielders love playing with the shift restrictions because um, it, it puts them in a position to make plays. And that gets to the next point, which I think is also compelling, which is that restricting the shift, I think, puts the game more back in the players' hands. It returns the game to the players. In other words. Games will be decided more by whether the second baseman can range into the hole, dive, pop up, make the Roberto Alomar play, throw him out at first base. That's a do or die play with the game on the line. Instead of did the front office have the perfect algorithm to position you know, his defense exactly where, where the ball is going to be hit. And then last, yeah, look, um, I, I think it will impact uh, the ball and play environment. And, and look, when, when the league's hitting two, 243, I think anything that you can do to, to, to make the in-play environment a little bit easier on hitters, even if it's mainly a subset of hitters, like if shift restrictions are going to benefit left-handed hitters way more than right-handed hitters, it'll help open up, open up some, some holes on the field. And um, we've also seen that um, just generally a non-shifted environment encourages uh, a few more balls in play uh, for whatever reason, when you even you know, when you adjust for, for the batter and the pitcher in the context, walk rate and strikeout rates are a little bit lower in non-shifted at-bats than they are in shifted at-bats. So 
all in all, it's a close call, you know, arguments on both sides, but, you know, given what we've seen, given how prevalent the shift is, given how extreme it's getting, how big a part of the game it's been and how hard it is to, to hit right now, I think bringing it back is, uh, is worth trying. And, and no one, no one's saying that we're getting it exactly right. I think um, seeing how it plays out, knowing that it's, there's a really low percentage that we got, we got the perfect rule precisely right the first time we'll make adjustments as we go. It was the same thing with instant replay. It's good to lean in and, and, and try new things to, to make the game better and be humble about it, knowing that things will come up you didn't anticipate and you can make adjustments uh, along the way. As someone who spent a long time uh, trying to use the rules to your advantage, is there anything that prevents, we can't obviously need two guys on either side of second base, what's to prevent a shortstop who's barely to the left of second base from starting to move over to the other side of second base as the pitcher goes in his windup or even sprinting over to right field? And also, what's to prevent, I don't think there's anything to prevent this, but maybe it's just not a good idea, a left fielder from being shifted over into short right field to, in effect, have a shift against those big left-handed hitters. Yeah, well, as, as the rules currently constructed, nothing is to prevent your second point except except the risks associated with it. So in other words, if you, if you take your left fielder and you position them where the traditional shifted infielder is in short right field, now you're essentially playing with two outfielders. And so, yeah, you're going to prevent a few more pulled singles through the right side, but now you're covering the entire outfield with, with two with two players and you're going to very likely create more doubles and triples and hurt your team more than you help them, except in extreme situations. You know, you have maybe an extreme ground ball pitcher on the mound, you know, left-handed hitter who hits the ball on the ground a lot. Maybe, maybe you could consider it under certain game situations, but I think there's you know, we may see that. I think there's, and you can always adjust the rule to prevent it if it becomes popular. I think covering the entire, an entire major league outfielder with two outfielders is going to be risky. And then uh, to your first question about what's to prevent a shortstop from, from moving, it's a question of degree and, and rule interpretation and umpire judgment. So fielders should have and need the ability to, to lean and to anticipate where the ball is going to be hit and to get a great jump. And nothing in the rule is intended to prevent fielders from doing that. But there's also language in the rule that allows umpires the ability to prevent circumvention of the rule. And I think even the rule lists the example of, you know, a fielder uh, running uh, to time to time his way to in a full sprint to get to the other side of the field. That would be deemed a circumvention of the rule. There's going to be a, a long period of umpire training and feedback and interpretation as you prepare for spring training, but umpires are called on to, to make sure the rule isn't circumvented in that manner. Theo, you mentioned a few times pitcher dominant, 243 batting average. These rules, I, I actually like all your rules you're implementing, but in the end, if we do not do something to try to take some of the velocity especially out of the game, is that limiting the number of pitchers available to use every game or pitching changes or moving the mound back? I just wonder, I know you've done a lot, but you personally have been involved in this. Are we doing enough if we do not do something to try to impact velocity in the game? No, I think, uh, well, I don't think anyone is looking at these three rule changes and, and the bigger basis too, which we didn't talk about yet, but in saying we're done and then this solves all the problems. Yeah. I think the, the single biggest concern in the game that affects the style of play is the strikeout rate and, and, and pitcher dominance. And we're in an, we're in an era where pitchers have never had more at their disposal 
in terms of, of data and technology and, and modern training, um, and they're using it incredibly well. And, and, I, and I don't mean to, I'm not at all disparaging pitchers. I'm in awe of, of how good pitchers are, how hard they've worked, how, how they've really worked to, to um, take advantage of, of you know, uh, some of these breakthroughs and everything that's available to them to, you know, you know to increase velocity, to get in a pitch lab and des design breaking balls that are, that are completely optimized. You know, pitchers are throwing fewer and fewer fastballs, more and more wipe, wipe out breaking balls. Um, they're, you know, training specifically for velocity. They're adjusting pitch grips to get the absolute most out of the, their full arsenal. There's, there's taking advantage of, of everything at their disposal working incredibly hard and taking pitching to, to heights that we've never seen before. And at the same time, as all, all this is available to pitchers more than ever has been available to them in the past, less is being asked of them. You know, when, when, if you go back a generation and you said, what you asked the starting pitcher, what, what's your job? The, the, the answer and everyone in the, on the team and in the organization knew this was get as deep in the game as possible, hand the ball to the catcher. If you could, if not get, get into the, get into the ninth, get into the eighth, get certainly get into the seventh and, and eat up those innings. You have 1400 innings uh, over the course of a season. They have to come from somewhere. So starting pitchers looked at uh, volume and bulk as, as a big part of their job. And now because of modern pitcher usage and roster construction and, and, and the way pitching has, has evolved, I'd say, I'd argue that, the job of the starting pitcher, if you're we're being honest in the game today is different. It's not, it's not go deep in the game anymore. It's miss as many bats as you can and, you know, throw, throw max effort as long as you can. And, and, and managers have, have told pitchers this, miss as many bats as you can, punch out as many guys as you can. And don't, you know, we'll come get the ball from you. If that's the fifth inning, it's the fifth inning. And we have, you know, under modern bullpen construction, we have eight guys behind you in, in the bullpen who, who also throw in the upper 90s and, and, and can come in and dominate behind you. So that's that's a huge change in the game. You know, we went from starting pitchers who have to concern themselves not just with effectiveness, but also with quantity. And so that means they pace themselves. Uh, pitching used to be not quite as much a power display and was a little bit more of an art little bit less of an art, a um, little bit more of a science, and it's the science of bat missing and dominance. So, yeah, I think that's a concern. Um, it's, it's not going anywhere. Pitchers are just getting better better and better, and, and pitchers have this inherent advantage compared to, to hitters when it comes to using modernism and data and technology because pitching is inherently proactive. So what to do about it? You know, you mentioned limit, limiting the amount of pitchers on the roster. That's something that has already gone into effect, you know, to, to, to a small extent. The rule now is, is 13 pitchers. And, you know, we remember when, when we were growing up, there were 10 and then, and then 11 pitchers on a staff, it's grown, um, you know, then to 12, then to 13, and it got to a point where it's sort of 14 was average. And, and so this rule reigns it in a little bit back, back to 13. Yeah, you, you could you could make an argument that it would be a smart thing to consider gradually over time with, with advanced notice to clubs and to the industry so that we could adjust and start develop drafting and developing starting pitchers again and putting that emphasis back on efficiency and volume, not just on bat missing and dominance to, to over time consider ramping it down. You can make an argument that, you know, within five to 10 years, we should ramp it down below 13 to 12, maybe to 11, you know, and, and what that would do, it, it would probably bring back 
uh, especially if it was done in conjunction with the double hook where, you know, you, you reward teams for, for getting more innings out of their starting pitcher by keeping the DH in the game or some mechanism like that that prevents teams from just going to three, three inning pitchers. Uh, but but actually putting a premium on the starting pitcher going deep in the game, it would bring back a little bit of the art of pitching because efficiency would be uh, valued again by managers, by general managers, because you need to get those 1,400 innings from fewer pitchers. And so you'd have fewer max effort pitches thrown. Uh, you'd, you'd see pitching the contact come back a little bit. You'd see a bit more east-west pitching instead of this north-north-south bat missing all the time. But it's a complicated issue. And I think um, players and organizations would, would need time to adjust. So it would have to be studied and it's being studied and have to be cons- uh, done the right way. Other potential changes, you know, uh, there was a strong cry to consider moving the, moving the mound back as, as a way to restore that equilibrium between batters and pitchers as sort of a way of effectively lowering reigning in velocity by giving, by giving the hitter more reaction time. And, and one attractive thing about that type of rule change is if it worked, it might be it might sort of fix everything with the strikeout rate, and 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 you don't have to do you know four or five or six other rule changes. So we did test it out uh, in the Atlantic League a couple of years ago. It proved to be a difficult rule to experiment with uh, in the minor leagues because it it fundamentally impacts you know pitchers trying to trying to make a living and, and hitters too. Um, the results. So, so it was a big burden on players and we appreciated their cooperation. Try to make the rule change experiments as, 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 as sort of convenient as possible for players. That one was, was a little difficult. And uh, the results weren't, weren't great. You know, the strikeout, strikeout rate actually went up. It doesn't mean that that's not something to consider if it can be done in a way that protects players and, and, and you factor in player safety. So we're continuing to study increased uh, mound distance, but in, in a laboratory setting, but studying it as, you know, something to, to keep in mind and, and, and a possible way to restore the equilibrium. Something that we're also studying, you know, in, in a laboratory setting is, you know, can you create a better visual environment for hitters? You know, if you, if you had, I'm just picking one example, but if you had like darker markings on the baseball, would it be on both sides of the ball? Would it be easier for, for, for hitters to pick up? And do you, do, would you, would you, if you had better lighting, better hitters backgrounds, any small thing that you can do to help hitters in this environment where, where pitching is so good and so dominant. So those are the, the two ways I think to ultimately get to the problem is rein in pitching a little bit it, and there are different ways to do that, but generally placing more of a, a premium on, on volume. So there's fewer max effort pitches thrown. By the way, I think the pitch clock will do that too. It's, it's harder to throw max effort when, when you're throwing every 15 seconds. And then so ways to rein in pitching, put a little bit of drag on pitching and then ways to, to help hitters and, and put hitters in a position to, to succeed a little bit more than they are now. Last one for me. I'm going to change the subject a bit. Uh, you were a general manager for a long time and you were very bold as a general manager, you made a lot of great trades, but you certainly did take chances. Obviously, that uh, trade with the White Sox, we gave up Dylan Cease, but you made so many great trades and resulted in, as I said, three championships. Nowadays, it seems like the GMs are much more timid. The ones who did take chances, E.J. Preller, the most extreme example, they're still around. Uh, Jerry Depoto made that trade for uh, Castillo. Click with Houston. They already had a great team anyway. They were going to still be alive anyway, but they made some good trades. But it seems like we see a lot more timidity among general managers. What do you think the reason for that is now? I don't think it's fair of me in this position now to judge on the spectrum of courageous to timid where where uh, <laughs> where GMs are. I'll say this, though. I think we, we, we were talking about rule changes. There haven't been a lot of rule changes the last 
you know, 20 years or so. And so, and, and there's been a lot of new technology. There's been a lot of capturing of new data streams and there's been a lot of application of those data streams, both on the field with the way players play and also in front offices with the way teams are put together. So I think that this, this generally um, static environment and, and, and a lot of the, 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 the advancements and breakthroughs and learnings, um, which are now widespread throughout the game, have created more of a homogenous product. Like team, teams now look a lot alike. Te- there are a lot of, you know, most organizations sort of function with similar draft models, with similar development philosophies, with similar roster. Players are valued in a really similar way by a lot of general managers. And I think that has um, a cascading effect into the, the way the game looks on the field is that, you know, you don't necessarily have teams trying to do it different ways anymore. You know, when we were growing up, you could look and, you know, the, the Cardinals were seven fast guys and Jack Clark, you know, and because they played on, on AstroTurf field, the rules were a little, like a little bit different for them. That was, that really worked for them. The Dodgers was, was, was pitching the uh, Orioles were, you know, three run homer and, and, and great defense. You had your take and rake teams, you had your contact hitting teams. And it was just even, even hitters, like their stances, you know, you saw di- different batting stances. Now everything on the field looks a little bit more similar. Teams are put together the same way. I think that's an argument for in favor of the rule changes in favor of taking a few chances, because when you add something like a pitch timer uh, when you consider, you know, future changes to, to the game in, in, for the sake of putting the best version of the game on the field, what you're really talking about is disruption of some sort. You're taking the status quo, you're taking this relatively sort of homogenous game, and you're adding a significant disruption. And 30 organizations are going to react to that in their own way. Um, there, it's, it's going to be a change from taking the known competitive advantages that are out there and all these systems that are in place in front offices and organizations to take advantage of those competitive advantage. And now all of a sudden it's disrupted and there's a hunt for new competitive advantages, new ways to, to, to go win baseball games, new ways to adjust to a pitch timer, new ways to put together those 1400 innings that you need over the course of the season and, and new way, you know, the running game, we haven't talked about that, but as a consequence of the pitch timer and the disengagement limit and the bigger bases to an extent, it's going to be a little bit easier to steal bases. So some teams might dive headlong into that and, and build their teams with, with faster, more athletic players. Other teams might ignore that and focus on other aspects of the game. So I think that's good for the game. I think it's going to increase uh, diversity of approach with how you see the game played on the field and also with how teams are put together. And therefore to get back to a a circuitous route, back to your question, I think GMs will, will be more unique and, and will take more chances in an environment where there's more unknowns and, and where there's more disruption. And I think that'll be good for the game. I look forward to seeing how GMs and organizations respond. Theo, uh, in our thing, we have a show timer and it's uh, running against us here. So we're not going to be able to get into the the base stealing. It's a reason to already have you on again. So I just want to wrap up. You you have these two positions now. You work for MLB. You work for Arctos, which I believe helps people get ownership groups together for sports teams. You clearly will know everything that's available one way or the other. You must be the most in-demand executive who's not working for a team right now. 
What does Theo Epstein want to do with his future? Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I love what I'm doing now. You know, I've worked for teams for 30 years and loved it, loved the, the competition, loved the camaraderie. Uh, probably will do it again in, in some form or another uh, eventually. But taking a little break now to, while my kids are still young enough um, where they, they might want to hang out with me now and then. You guys know how quick it goes. <laughs> it's a lot, you know, when you're, when you're talking about 162 games and then plus six weeks in spring training plus hopefully a month in the postseason and then you have the off season it doesn't leave a lot of time to structure your life the way you want to you know to always be present for your kids and to live a good life so taking a break for a few years has been great really enjoying that aspect of it really appreciate the, the seat at the table that the commissioner granted me to, to be part of this discussion about putting the best version of the game on the field and how to think through these rule changes um and then Arctos uh, Sports Partners has been great, um, breaking new ground um, as institutional capital comes into uh, sports franchise ownership. So, yeah, I've, I've said before, you know, uh, for for a next and probably final chapter in baseball, it would, it would be really rewarding, I think, uh, to be to be part of an ownership group. I love the building process. I love defining a set of values that you want to build your, your organization around. And I've seen great ownership and how that can make an impact on, on a city or region and, and, and how great it is when you, when you build something uh, that leads to a winner and can help make a lot of people happy and do a lot of good in your community. So the right time, the right group, the right situation, that's something I'd definitely entertain again. But for now um, it's fun to think about, Think, look, see the game through the fans' eyes and just try to you know, work with the commissioner and the players and the, the competition committee to put the best possible product we can on the field. Well, Theo, thanks for all that. Thanks for all the insights about what's coming for next year and also insights into what your near future is. John and I appreciate you joining us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you today. John, Theo Epstein took us a lot of different places, so I'll ask the broad question. What stood out to you from what Theo Epstein talked to us about? Well, we certainly got chapter and verse on, on the new rules, and I, I think overall they are terrific. I'm very happy about the pitch clock or the pitch timer, as I learned it's now called the pitch timer. That's like Orwellian it. of them. I like Okay, So that the good. pitchers don't feel bad about being told they're on a clock. It's a timer. Uh, yes. feels more pastoral. Is that what it is? Okay, you're good. <laughs> you're, you're, you're thinking this through. You know, he obviously explained everything in detail. What I really liked was my stupid question about, uh, you know, what if a guy's a shortstop just to the left of second and he starts to run, what can he do? And it's obviously uh, against the uh, tenor of the rules and uh, the umpire will have some judgment of what to do about that. So kind of at the discretion of the umpire. So we, have, we might have another judgment uh, ruling in place there, but uh, maybe generally guys will uh, stick to the, ten the tenor of the rule and stay uh, where they're supposed to be, at least at the start of the pitch. And also, I, it's interesting to see, because you brought this up to me, was a left fielder, what if he, he can move to short right field, right? That's allowed by the rules and and kind of uh, circumvent the rule and prevent the big left-handed hitter from hitting that ground ball single that's an out now and it will still be an out. And uh, he pointed out that the two outfielders could be uh, disincentive and uh, you know, might really hurt. So uh, I, I thought those were good answers, and uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But, uh, you know, just a brilliant guy and uh, showed you how he won three World Series when really nobody, nobody's winning three World Series now. It's going to be spread around, I think, but uh, good yeah. for him. Yeah, well, I think it's going to be fascinating next year when the left fielder goes plays in that spot, the short right field, for Daniel Vogelback. 
And then Daniel Vogelback hits a ball to completely oddly empty space to see if he could circumvent 360 feet. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) By by the time somebody goes fields the ball. John, I think you hit on a key point we should think about heading into the offseason next season, which is every team already has started this, but even more in the offseason, will go into their laboratory and try to figure out how to find the soft spots in the new rules. And I think we already saw, we never, we had Theo for so long, and yet we never got into bigger bases, fewer pickoff moves. If you notice, stolen bases were way up in the minor leagues. The Yankees, a team we don't think of as a big running team, Anthony Volpe, Oswald Peraza, they had big stolen base numbers in the minor leagues. I think we're going to see that in uh, next year. And I think everyone essentially is going to go into their lab and figure out what to do. That's for another day. Thanks for listening to the show, a podcast from the New York Post. Thank you to Anthony Beltamo for helping us through this, landing all the planes and uh, producing our show. Thank you to the good folks here at MCM. Don't forget to go to the Yes app. We're up on Wednesday at noon every week. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter. He's at John Heyman. I'm at Joel Sherman 1. And please join us every week on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman.